From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, one-on-one with Governor Jared Polis as he manages the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll talk about expanded testing, ventilators, and whether he has any fears the decisions he's making may be draconian. No, because the decisions that we make every day are based on the information that I have, not the information I wish I had. Then, an ICU lung doctor on the front lines in Colorado. Things are changing every day, and we're learning more effective ways, potentially, to treat patients. Also, the Trump administration tossed out tighter fuel efficiency standards. What does that mean for Colorado's green goals? Plus, an email from an auto insurer with some rare good news. Later, the challenges of living alone while staying at home and a pandemic soundtrack. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's governor this week extended the statewide stay-at-home order through April 26th. But how will Jared Polis decide whether to stick to that date, balancing public health and the economy? It's one of the subjects we discussed Thursday afternoon, but we got to some other coronavirus news first. Governor, thank you for being with us. Well, Ryan, we're with each other in a new and different way. Uh, Your listeners may not know that usually we sit down together across a big table, and today we're on the phone together because of the need to stay at home. Indeed. So far, the youngest Coloradan to die of COVID-19, at least with a positive test result, is 21-year-old Cody Leister of Aurora. And, uh, Governor, I connected with his father, Kevin, and here's what he wrote. My son's story is all over the news, and I would like the governor to use it to educate everyone. COVID-19 affects everyone, young and old, and people need to pay attention to Polis's message. Would you share just a few thoughts hearing that? And it's my understanding that Kevin is also suffering from COVID-19. I, I hope he's doing better in his recovery. But yeah, Cody was 21 years old, graduated from Rangeview High School uh, in Aurora, college student, played on the baseball team at Colorado uh, Mesa, and was just struck down. It shows that this virus is a killer of people of all ages. And while we often focus on you know, how people in their 70s and 80s are at the highest risk, and you know, my parents are 75 and are staying home at all, you know, at all times and bringing them groceries, this could also kill people of all ages. And this is why it's so important for Coloradans to stay at home for ourselves, our family members, and also so we can get back open as quickly as possible. You know, Governor, I find myself sometimes overreacting to every little tingle in my throat or potential cough. There have been days I check my temperature again and again. You know, I rack my brain. Whose hand did I shake? What surface did I touch two weeks ago? Take your policy head off for a moment. Do you struggle with those sorts of hypervigilant thoughts, too, right now? You know, I think we all are are elevating any... uh anything other than the normal that we're feeling just in a normal day. It's important to put it in context that if you contract coronavirus, there's a nine in 10 chance you won't need hospitalization or treatment beyond just getting better in your home and and, and you don't need to panic. Now, that's both a high number and a low number, Ryan. Um, mm. It's a it, it's a low number in the sense that, yeah, there's a nine in 10 chance you just get better in your home and you don't have to go to the hospital. But you got things like the normal things like the flu and a cold you know, it's more like 99% or higher that you stay in your home. So this is one in 10, you know, might need to have their life saved at a hospital with oxygen or in extreme cases, ventilation. 
that's why this thing is so brutal. And of course, some don't even make it through it. We've lost about 200 Coloradans already, including Cody at age 21 in his prime. And also an El Paso County deputy sheriff who was only 41, just a couple of years younger than I am. On Monday, you extended the statewide stay-at-home order to April 26th. Uh, some cities and counties' orders, including Denver's, don't lift until the 30th. On Tuesday, in a virtual town hall, you elaborated on what life might look like after that. Bars and restaurants probably wouldn't be allowed to be at maximum capacity, for instance. But generally, you thought people could go back to work, likely wearing masks. Really? I mean, how confident are you that that would mean Colorado avoids a second wave, a second peak of this illness? So first of all, how well we squash this first peak here is critical. That's why all of this, us getting back to a sense of normalcy, it all depends on our success staying at home these next two weeks, except when absolutely necessary. We've got to squash this thing. Uh, and then and then also the importance of wearing masks when we go out. If we can do that, there can be expanded activities. And of course, we're going to work on those guidelines for exactly how that looks. And I don't think anybody's expecting we're going to be able to pack into a 60,000 person you know, stadium in a normal way anytime soon. You've said, in fact, that mass gathering stadiums full of people wouldn't be possible again until there's a cure or a vaccine. What is your metric for how you decide whether the stay-at-home order can be lifted or partially lifted? Is it the increase in cases from day to day? What are you using to measure that? I think there are a lot of people interested in opening back up the economy who want to know what you are looking at. Yeah, so we have uh, metrics, really the publicly reported metrics are the same ones that we see them. They're at covid19.colorado.gov. Every day it's updated uh, at about 4 o'clock p.m. It's, it's sometimes updated more often than that. We now have about 200 deaths in our state, including Cody at age 21, uh, the youngest victim. And so we're looking at hospitalizations, uh, infection rate, and also where these infections are occurring and how, uh, you know, infections that are within nursing homes or residential facilities. And so all that information is available to the public. They can look at it. That's the same information that's incorporated into the models that inform decision making. Now, you've said many times that you are driven by data. Lawmakers, journalists and others are hungry for data, too, and more of it. There's some frustration that Coloradans lack easy access to details of COVID-19 cases, county, age, gender, the timing of their disease progression, race, ethnicity. I'll note that Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod very much wants to see what the racial disparities may be in Colorado. Um, Governor, will you state here that that information should be made easily available without special request? Well, absolutely. I would love to have that information from hospitals, uh, we have age and gender, so I don't know uh, what that means. That's made available. We would love information on race. We'd love information on neighborhood level. We'd, we'd love the more information, the better. And so our goal is to be transparent with anything we receive, and we would love to receive more information from the hospitals. If it's something they take on their intake forms already, uh, they should share it with us. If they don't currently take it on intake, that might involve hospitals changing their, their practice to start asking questions they might not have asked in the past. Okay, you have said that along with mass gatherings might come mass testing. 
I want to hear about how that occurs. So I've heard over and over again that the state wants to get to that point. I have heard less about how it gets there. Can you elaborate? We now do about 10 times as many tests as we did just two weeks ago or three weeks ago. But it's going to need to be a lot more when we get to that April 26th date. And it needs to be incorporated into a lot of our everyday lives when folks have symptoms, people who might have been exposed to them, because we need to be in a more nimble position to quarantine individuals and folks they've been in contact with, rather than essentially what's happening now, Ryan, which is a quarantining of everybody with a stay-at-home order. So once we get it to the point where we can quarantine the specific incidences and outbreaks, the testing will continue to scale. It'll, it'll scale over the next week, the week after, but it'll play an even larger role as we reopen. Okay, so just to put a finer point on that, is testing a metric you will use and how much of it is happening to determine whether the stay-at-home order can be lifted? So it's more than just testing that'll be a bigger part of our everyday lives. Uh, testing meaning testing for the virus. There's two ways to do that. One is a nasal swab detecting the active virus. The other is a blood test that can detect the antibodies for the virus occurring several days later. It's also about screening for temperature. Uh, There's ways to do that with thermal cameras, with thermometers, and, of course, the isolation and distancing protocols, which will need to be in place even as we return to more normal economic functions. So would you want that testing to occur in people's doctor's offices? Would you open more drive-up testing centers? Help us understand what more testing by the 26th looks like. So it's all of the above. Uh, there's, as I said, there's 10 times more testing than there was two weeks ago, and that includes everything from drive-up facilities operated by hospitals to doctor room testing to labs that are sent out. It, it, there's a different prioritizations and ways to do it. For instance, there is uh, very quick turnaround tests being run in Colorado. Those have an hour or two turnaround. There's also the ones that have a day turnaround. And then there's also some that if we send them out for processing, it could take three or four days. So it's about really prioritizing when we need the results for whom. Of course, the priority will remain clinical need for results from patients being admitted and, of course, healthcare workers to keep people safe. But we're well beyond that in terms of our testing capacity. We have more testing capacity than just those needs. And so it's a question of who gets them. What is also important to know, Ryan, is a lot of people, you probably hear from them too, say, I might have COVID-19. I have a bad cough and flu. What do I do? You should not run out and get testing. There's probably 20, 30,000 people with COVID-19 in our state and another 30, 40,000 with COVID-19 symptoms that are negative that have something else. The last thing we want is 50, 60,000 people scrambling around hospitals and doctor's offices getting tested for no reason. And I say for no reason because there's no treatment. Nine out of 10 people stay at home and get better. The flip side of that is if you need medical treatment, of course, call your doctor. If you're having difficulty breathing and and might need oxygen, you know, call right away. I guess I hear two things there. I hear we want mass testing, and yet we don't want everyone to go out and get mass testing. Help help me understand. Well, you use the word mass. It's going to be targeted testing. It's not not testing for everybody. So it's going to be targeted based on the need for who needs to be tested. If you're ill, you need to self-isolate and seek out medical treatment if you uh, need it. I think there's some confusion over where Colorado stands with ventilators. Uh, These can be life-saving for COVID-19 patients, but we also know many patients who require them later die. Bear with me as I run through some numbers. You wrote at one point to the vice president asking for 10,000 ventilators. Colorado had an order for 500, which FEMA intervened on, pounced on. The president then announced 100 were coming to Colorado. 
Meanwhile, you also said this week, as long as Colorado residents are staying home, I think we will be okay with regard to the ventilator situation. Governor, did you ask for more ventilators than Colorado needed? So we didn't know and still don't know for sure how effective Coloradans are at staying at home. Um, It all depends on that number. Uh, If Coloradans didn't stay at home at all, we would need close to 10,000 ventilators and we'd probably lose 30 to 40,000 Coloradans. If Colorado stays home at 60%, it's going to be very tight and we need additional ventilators. If Coloradans are staying home 70, 80%, then uh, we should have what we need. We've increased the supply by about five to 600 currently here in Colorado more, hopefully in route, but five to 600 more. Just how this works, Ryan, is, is ventilators are the very last intervention. And you're absolutely right. Many patients die on the ventilator. Some come back and can have it removed. About one in 10 people who have COVID-19 will need medical care. Most cases, they go to the hospital and they have oxygen. You know, that's a mask. That's not a ventilator. It's very common. You're on a higher quantity of oxygen, a higher percentage of oxygen for a period of time because your lungs are at diminished capacity. For some of those patients, Uh, who are on oxygen, they will deteriorate further and be unable to sufficiently oxygenate their blood, even with increased oxygen, and they will need to be put on vents. But that is the final intervention for those who are in the most critical phase. Okay. And so your original ask was based on a worst-case scenario. Uh, on Monday, CP- well, I wouldn't call I, would, I wouldn't call it worst case, Ryan. It was based on what would happen if we went about business as usual. That's about where we would be. If Coloradans failed to stay home, that is uh, the realistic scenario of what would be happening in our state. On Monday, CPR News reported that a Fort Collins manufacturer, Woodward, was gearing up to manufacture low-cost ventilators. Uh, this came from a member of an innovation task force you put together. Do you know, is that company moving forward If so, how many will they produce? How many will Colorado buy, and when would we expect to see them? We've assembled some top leaders uh, from the private sector, from manufacturing, from software, from other fields. They're all volunteering their time for the state. It's really wonderful to see folks uh, coming in and, and helping with this crisis. We have a number of irons in the fire to make sure that we have the life-saving supplies that we need. So we're working with a variety of suppliers to make sure. Can you comment on that Woodward deal to save lives? Can you comment on the Woodward deal? We have. We, there are there's probably about 50 things like that that are, are being worked on, okay. and it's all about the timing of delivery and doing the best we can to make sure that we have the supplies we need to save lives. We know that nursing homes have been particularly hard hit by COVID-19. More than 40 facilities have seen outbreaks. The state epidemiologist has said if we don't take this seriously, we'll continue to see an increase in cases and a tragic loss of life. Was there more the state could have done earlier to avoid the rapid escalation in nursing homes? So those were some of the, actually they were, the very first uh, steps that we took. Among those very first were restricting visitation uh, to nursing homes, meaning they were put under where you can have, you know, family come in, checking workers when they show up on the sites, and really essentially locking them down well before the stay-at-home order of the state. Of course, with the community transmission we had and with so many people working in those facilities, it was inevitable that just like regular Coloradans in their everyday lives contracted the virus, that some people who live in nursing homes would also contract the virus. Some of them might have contracted there. Some of them might have contracted it because they too go out and buy groceries in some cases or engage in community activities. So uh, we know that when the virus tears through 
an area with 70 to 80 year olds, the fatality rate is higher. Now, again, the good news is there are also those who survive and get better, of course. But that's why they're under the strictest uh, possible isolation and were from kind of the very early days um, based on what was happening in Washington state as well. To wrap up, is there any scenario in which once the state has moved past this, you look back and you say, the efforts I took were overly draconian? Uh No, not really, Ryan, because the decisions that we make every day are based on the information that I have, not the information I wish I had. I would love information from tomorrow and information from next week. I'm never going to have the luxury of making decisions based on on that information from the future. So we have to make the best, most informed decisions with the daily data from multiple streams, the scientific input every day, every hour of every day. And I'm I'm confident that we're doing that. And I have to make it based on the information we have rather than the information I wish I had. Governor, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis speaking with me Thursday afternoon by phone. Still to come, it looks like Colorado will fight for tougher fuel efficiency standards. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Stuart Vanderworld, president of Colorado Public Radio. To every single member and supporter of CPR, I want to personally let you know we are so grateful for you and your steadfast support. Each day, all Coloradans are sharing in a single experience, and more and more people are turning to Colorado Public Radio. And because of your generosity, CPR is here for Colorado. Your support inspires and fuels our service every day. On behalf of everyone at CPR, be well and thank you for your support. When the Trump administration rolled back Obama-era vehicle mileage standards last week, it was a gut punch for climate activists. So what now? CPR's Grace Hood is going to get into that with us, but she'll start with the rollback itself. The Trump administration announced new terms for how much gas cars and trucks use. Instead of the Obama-era goal of nearly 55 miles per gallon by 2025, the Trump administration will bring that down to 40 miles per gallon. It just doesn't make sense to us from a cost perspective, from a health perspective, from an environmental perspective. It's the wrong way to go. Danny Katz is a climate and consumer activist at the Colorado Public Interest Research Group. He says transportation is the largest contributor of greenhouse gases in the state. The Obama-era goal was an easy win for air quality. And it just costs you more at the pump. You just literally have to pay more for every mile that you're driving. Katz says that could amount to as much as $3,200 over the lifetime of a vehicle. Colorado and other states like California have signaled plans to sue the federal government in the coming weeks. John Putnam heads environmental programs for the state. We're disappointed, but we're prepared to move on because we all know to save consumers money, provide more regulatory certainty for the auto industry, and to meet our climate objectives, we're going to have to increase fuel efficiency. Colorado legislators passed an ambitious climate agenda that requires a 50 percent greenhouse gas reduction over the next 10 years. The state was counting on big gains from fuel efficiency standards. In the short term, Putnam says it may reach out to automakers to ask for voluntary fuel efficiency measures. The picture all adds up to uncertainty for the car industry. Tim Jackson heads up the Colorado Auto Dealers Association. It is in a state of flux, and and it's going to continue that way unless and until there is either a settlement in court or a national standard that we can all get back to. 
Jackson favored the Trump administration policy because he thinks higher fuel efficiency would make the cost of vehicles more expensive. But more importantly, he wanted certainty. Now that certainty is something that the industry won't see anytime soon. And Grace Hood is on the line now with what to expect in coming weeks. Hi, Grace. I feel like I haven't seen you forever. Hey there. California, Colorado, other states have signaled plans to sue the federal government over the weaker standards. What can we expect in those suits? Expect them to touch on a controversial modeling technique the Environmental Protection Agency used to forecast the cost savings and benefits of the Trump administration standards. The EPA so far has withheld information on some of the underlying assumptions behind this forecast model. Mm. And a recent court decision actually forced the EPA to make its model public. Colorado has ambitious new greenhouse gas reduction goals. So what happens to those as these court battles play out? Right. That's really the million-dollar question. The head of Colorado's Air Quality Control Commission told me that the state will continue to move forward working on these fuel efficiency standards. Mm. This really has to do with the fact that the state isn't technically relying on the federal rule that's been rolled back. It actually has its own state version of the rule that's tied up in another court challenge that was launched this past fall. And um, that's where the Trump administration revoked a rule that allows states led by California, to set their own standards. There are about a dozen states in this category, including Colorado. So with Colorado's stricter fuel efficiency standards set to take place in 2022, the head of the Colorado Air Quality Control Commission tells me it's full steam ahead. Okay, so we know indeed that transportation is the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions for this state. How devastating would it be if these various court challenges don't go in Colorado's favor? I think at face value, it would be pretty devastating. Uh, But there are some of these other puzzle pieces that are in flux right now. So first off, some automakers uh, like Ford, VW, Volvo have signaled that they may voluntarily work to meet the Obama-era fuel standards. Uh, Interesting, Uh, presumably because that's good business for them. I'm assuming this is in the interest of of gaining the certainty that, like Tim Jackson from the Colorado Auto Dealers Association spoke of in your report, too. That's exactly it. The other thing, the second thing to think about here is that Colorado is trying to encourage the adoption of electric vehicles, EVs. So you may remember that one of Polis's first environmental executive orders was aimed at encouraging the adoption of EVs. Colorado is in the middle of building out a statewide charging network. A set of standards will make models of cars that are only available in California and a few other states available here in Colorado cars like a Subaru all-electric Crosstrek. We have just about a minute. Some auto dealers have argued that this rule unnecessarily drove up costs. Is that true, Grace, just briefly? Yeah, the Colorado Auto Dealers Association sued over this, and the court case didn't really get that far. And, you know, just the last thing to watch here in Colorado is really related to what happens after 2025. That's when the Trump administration's weaker fuel economy rules Uh, If they are held up in court, they would expire in 2025. Mm. So we could see a push by states to adopt economy measures, 
beyond that 2025 year. And remember that Colorado has the overall goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions 50 percent by 2030. There's a long game here for sure. Grace Hood is CPR environment and energy reporter. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a lung doctor who says his field is learning something new every day about COVID-19. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News. The coronavirus has turned life on its head, and we're here to help you handle it. Hey, I'm Sam Brash. And I'm May Ortega. And we have a new podcast full of ideas for how to live during these strange times. It's called At a Distance. Sometimes it'll be serious. Sometimes it'll be fun. And every time you'll get useful tips and tools about how not just to survive, but maybe even thrive. At a Distance, your guide to life in a pandemic. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. For decades, Dr. Mark Moss has treated patients in intensive care as they struggle for their lives. It's tough work, and it's gotten tougher because of COVID-19. Moss is a critical care pulmonologist at the University of Colorado Hospital, and he spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. What's the pace of work like in the ICU right now? It's not that different from a normal day in the ICU, which often is called an intensive care unit. So it's an intense place and it has a frenetic pace that way. I think the things that are different are, number one, putting on and taking off personal protective equipment. The PPE takes time and we want to make sure we're being safe to ourselves and to other patients, et cetera. So we have to be very diligent about that. And that's something that's added time to the day. I think the other thing that I underestimated is you walk into the hospital and there are no family members there anymore. And that was a big part of our job as a critical care doctor, not only to help take care of the patient, but we would talk to the family and make sure we can help them going through a very difficult time. The families aren't there anymore. So what we have to do now is to have these serious conversations and update family members through video conferencing. And it's just very different that way. So in terms of the pace, we get in in the morning, we round on all the patients and come up with a plan. And in general, what happens in an intensive care unit is you're constantly seeing the patients. If you do something, you check back in a few minutes or a half an hour, see how that intervention worked, and maybe try something else. So you're constantly seeing the patients that you're taking care of and constantly adjusting the medications and the ventilator to most effectively treat the patients. And I want to circle back to this idea that patients can't have family members in the hospital because COVID-19 is so contagious. As a doctor, how do you build rapport when you're keeping up with families virtually? Yeah, it's, that's, that's the really hard part. I, I think a major part of my job as a critical care doctor is to build rapport and trust with family members. And you have to do that pretty quickly because they've never met you before. And they're very concerned about their loved one who's critically ill or the patient's concerned about their own health. Um, so you have to build the trust with someone you've never met before. Now, just imagine you have to do that through a video conference and you're wearing a mask so they can't see your facial expression. So I think it is difficult. I think it's what I've always said. I'm very upfront with patients um, and very caring to them. I want to make sure we answer their questions and their family members' questions. So I think the, the, the way I talk to patients and their families is the same way. It's just a little bit more difficult to do it through video conferencing with a mask over your face. Do you worry about bringing the virus home to your own family? I I do worry about that. We're very cautious. 
about I change clothing, take showers, don't really interact with my family as much as I did before that way. In other countries, they've had people, if you're taking care of COVID-positive patients, stay in hotels or kind of um, isolate yourself that way. We have the possibility to do that. The university and our division has um, stepped up to the plate and will provide the resources for that. And some people have taken advantage of that. I am still going home, but I think the longer this goes, I, I, I might consider doing that because the last thing any of us want to do is to get somebody else sick. That sounds like a very taxing decision in the midst of what's already a tough situation. Since you did see the march of this virus toward the United States, how were you able to prepare? We expected this to come. And for the last three to four weeks, the physicians and the hospital administrators um, at the University of Colorado Hospital and around the city have been planning for this. And I think that allowed us to be better prepared for the onslaught and the influx of patients that way. And what did that preparation look like? It was planning how to cope with decreased resources. So there was a lot of planning on what to do about beds in the hospital. And there was planning on what to do about ventilators and uh, personal protective equipment. The other thing that we realized is that healthcare professionals are resources also. And we wanted to make sure that we had enough healthcare professionals in the right places. So mm-hmm. we sat down as a group collaboratively to try to figure out how we could put the system in place that would properly treat the patients. We've heard a lot about equipment shortages, ventilators, personal protective equipment. Is your hospital running out of these things? So right now, I think we're okay in terms of personal protective equipment and ventilators. And I think we have a good plan expecting um, increased surges. Um, But I think there is always the concern that we'll run out of equipment. The other thing I'd add to the list that way are dialysis machines. About 30% of the critically ill COVID patients end up on dialysis, and there are only so many machines also. So that's also a potential shortage. But I think the state government and the hospital systems are doing a very good job of staying ahead of the curve and planning ahead that way so that we don't run out of things. I understand that you've been involved in formulating some new research around what's happening to these patients physically and potentially some new treatments. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's really been a very unique experience where it's a new disease and we kind of knew to some extent how to care for patients that develop something called the acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. This was a little bit different though. And each day people were noticing slight nuances about the COVID patients. And what was really interesting is that worldwide, we're all much more connected. So there's been a lot of communication about how to effectively take care of these patients sort of on the fly. In terms of new therapies, what's happened is people have become very interested in trying to identify a new therapy. And the National Institute of Health have really stepped up to the plate and approved clinical trials to be started very rapidly so that we will be able to more effectively know what medications may be um, 
beneficial to patients with COVID. We're kind of learning as we go along in a good way. The more we learn about the disease, the better we'll be able to take care of patients the next day. And let's talk about the stress of doing this day in and day out. Like you said, you're keeping some physical distance from your family. I know, for instance, that earlier in your career, you did research on critical care nurses and the issues they faced. What are you seeing in your ICU? It seems like emotionally this might be a really difficult time for health workers to handle. I think that in times of crisis, one of two things can happen. The crisis can tear people apart or the crisis can bring people together. And I think in the hospital, there's a common goal. And the common goal is we all are there to provide the best care to our patients that are in need. It's a moral commitment that way. And I, and I really do feel that this has bonded people together and strengthened the sense of community in the hospital. So I think that's one way is that you kind of feel like you're in it with other people. And I think that does help a lot to get through the stress that way. The other thing that's been really nice is that the community, the, the Denver metropolitan community and the, the nation has really stepped up to appreciate what healthcare providers, and it's not just doctors, it's, it's the whole team. This is a multidisciplinary approach. And it's nice to see that people recognize what you're doing and appreciate what you're doing. So that, that helps a little bit too. Have you had the chance to step outside and hear the Denver howl at 8 p.m.? You know, it's weird. Last night, I, I, I'd gotten home and I was doing some work, catching up on things. And I heard this. And I stepped out on my porch to kind of see what was going on. Um, and I realized that's what it was. And it was nice because some of my neighbors were like, hey, Mark, I hope you're doing okay. And kind of we're, we're pulling for you. So, yeah, I heard that. And I thought it was really a, a great tradition that way. And it was nice to be a part of it last night. Dr. Moss, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Um, well, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you! ICU pulmonologist Dr. Mark Moss, professor of medicine at CU, speaking with my colleague Avery Lowe. Emails from my car insurance company don't usually result in delight, but this one did. It was to inform me of a shelter-in-place discount, a 15% payback on my premium for April and May. I bought my policy with eSurance, which is owned by Allstate. CEO Tom Wilson told our colleagues at Marketplace that people are driving a lot less right now, and that means fewer accidents. If you have fewer accidents, then our costs go down. And we think it's fair to give our customers payback at this time when they need the money a lot. And that means Allstate will forego about $600 million in premiums. The company's 2019 profits were around $4.67 billion. Meanwhile, American Family Insurance says its customers will get $50 off per vehicle. USAA is offering a 20% credit for two months. And other companies are considering similar steps. An analyst tells Marketplace it's a smart move in a highly competitive industry. A friend of mine tweeted something really powerful towards the beginning of Colorado's stay-at-home order. He's single, and he's fine with that. Quoting here, I've always been happy living alone. But I never realized how much I got from cashiers, people on the street, casual acquaintances. And to see close friends, I always left my apartment for dinners, drinks, movies, skiing. 
or travel to be with distant friends. It's all upended. We want to focus now on the experiences of people who live alone while they are staying in place, like my friend, like me, and like Ashley Giles of Golden. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for being with us. We are collectively on day 16 of the stay-at-home order. How are you holding up? You know, it comes in waves. Um, today I'm good, and I realize that I just need to t- sort of take it day by day. So, What does it look Today's like? a good day. A good day. What does a, a not good day look like? Uh, a lot of, I would say a lot of fear. Um, and I would, I think that's, I find that that's pretty common with a, a, my other friends who are single and home alone. Um you know, what do you do if something happens, um, if you get sick and you need some, some assistance? Um, there's not a lot of assistance out there, uh, to you know, to get you to the hospital and that sort of thing. So I think there's primarily just fear in how to handle the situation on your own. Mm, so those are concerns about the physical aspects. But it yeah. also occurs to me that when you're in that fear mindset... It's not as if there's someone right there with you that you can kind of right. talk through that with. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, human beings are communal animals, and we we connect with each other. We need to connect with each other. That's how we have survived through the ages. And, you know, not having a person there in an intimate relationship um, can definitely um you know, affect your emotional state as well as your physical state. Meanwhile, we're having far fewer interactions, as my friend described, with cashiers and people on the streets. Um, uh, Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. uh, Like your friend, I, I have learned to appreciate in my singledom those subtle but really beautiful interactions with strangers and that connectivity that one gets from those sorts of interactions that we otherwise wouldn't necessarily have. And there is less of that, of course, um, in the normal sense. But uh, I think neighborly interaction has really, for me personally, has been sort of a nice joy that has come out of this. You know, people in my own little neighborhood have been much more um, out, much more, of course, home, but out in their yards and out on their porches at 8 o'clock at night howling at the moon. Uh-huh. And, um, <laughs> yeah, those, those, that has been really sort of a, a treat that's emerged from this, replacing the interaction with the cashier at the grocery store line, for instance. I did a Seder over Zoom last night with my family. I haven't tended to like video chat very much. I don't know. I just don't find it to be a great connection. Last night, really, it really helped me. But what's been your experience with video connection? Yeah. Well, you know, one of my rules being a single person and just I think it's a smart thing is I don't drink alone. Right. Mm. So, um, if I want to have cocktails or happy hour, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do it on my own. So sort of um, the Zoom happy hour has replaced <laughs> going out um, with friends. And, um, yeah, it's just it, virtual never replaces RL or real life. Um, 
there's just no replacement for being in the presence of friends and family or loved ones, being able to put your hand on their shoulder, comfort them or vice versa. So, you know, Zoom is the next best thing and I'll take it if I, if that's what I get, but, um, yeah, it's not it's not quite the same for me, like you said with your with Seder last night. Not well, quite the same. I, I I want to bring in Cindy White at this point, uh, associate professor of communications at CU Boulder, who studies interpersonal communication, language, nonverbal behavior. I think she has some great insight into the kinds of interactions we have today. Hi, Cindy. Hi. Good morning. What do you make of Ashley? Uh, looking for a connection with, you know, a grocery store clerk or a neighbor she might not have met before and struggling with the video aspect of this stuff? Well, the things she described, I think lots of people are experiencing. And um, it makes a lot of sense that those mundane interactions matter to us. One of the things that we can't recreate on video or FaceTime or Zoom or any of that is... um, what researchers talk about as synchrony, sort of that sense of back and forth and sh- and what we sometimes talk about as chronotopic similarity, that shared time and space. And so we, the tools that we have, like video chat, um, are nice ways to see people and get a sense of the nonverbal components that matter in interaction, but they don't come through quite the same way. And we really need and want those. Um, As Ashley said, we're communal animals. They're part of what sustains us and um, the richness matters. And so I do think lots of people are noticing how much um, that's diminished by having to keep six feet apart and not being able to have those ongoing interactions. Synchrony. Yeah, it occurs to me that the delay of video chat results in this kind of unsatisfying sometimes interaction because you aren't getting those immediate cues. Uh, video chat's one way to connect with family and friends. Um, as I've said, I don't necessarily look forward to it. And so I am paying much more attention, as it sounds like um, Ashley is, to the little um, in-person interactions that I am able to have. If it's, you know, picking up takeout or... Uh, at the grocery store or something like that. I have noticed a warmth in some of those interactions. In others, I have noticed that people avert their gaze. It's as if they are distancing physically and then thinking, that also means I need to distance mentally. First off, Ashley, have you noticed that, that it's kind of a mixed bag? Yeah, absolutely. I I would love to say that um, I've no- that people are generally gracious and helpful and um, kind to each other. But I've actually of late noticed, uh, now that we're into week five or whatever it is, Mm. that people, I'm starting to see some anxiety in people, and maybe that's the gaze aversion, as you were saying. Um, But I've started to see a pickup that people... um, are kind of getting antsy, um, nervous, a little bit of rudeness as I've sort of been out and about, which is intriguing to me to kind of see this wave or this arc of things. Um, and I feel like my speaking, pe- 
Yeah, sorry, Ashley. This is the awkwardness. Here we are, experiencing the very awkwardness <laughs> that I've been trying to describe. I can't read your visual cues. I interrupted right. you. Keep going. Keep going. I was just going to say, you know, I think I think people, we, we feel even though we, I, and a number of us are single and on our own, um, you know, I think we've, there's a general connectedness that, connectedness that we're all together in this, but, but I have noticed that there's um, more awkwardness and discomfort. I find myself defending sometimes, feeling like I'm defending my, yeah. my six feet. You know, don't you dare get any closer. <laughs> what, what do you make of what you've heard there, Cindy? Um, well, I do think that the six feet is part of what's driving this. There's certainly probably anxiety driving it too, but I have noticed the same thing and see people averting gaze and turning away slightly non-verbally as a kind of signal, a, a natural signal of don't get too close to me, right? Um, but that is challenging because it also makes negotiating some of this really hard. And it's an interesting, as Ashley noticed, an interesting difference. Some people are taking that distance as an opportunity to wave or to smile or to make eye contact. Mm. But I think in other cases, when people are doing those other behaviors, those are natural kind of responses that we use. We sometimes talk about civil inattention, ways of suggesting to other people, I don't really see you. I'm over here doing my thing. You keep doing your thing. We do that all the time in crowds and in public places, and now it probably feels heightened. And then six feet is lots further than we normally negotiate these things at. So it's really strange, I think, for us to try to figure out how far away is someone really and are they uh, keeping enough social distance? Because a, a more typical range would be within about three feet. Yeah. So everybody's sort of trying to do mental gymnastics to double that. And what does that look like? We don't have a good natural sense of that. I also find that in maintaining and defending my six feet, I am also cueing to the other person, I respect you enough to want to keep mm-hmm. six feet from you. So in a way, it's it's an overly articulated gesture to say, I, mm-hmm. I care about you. I'm mindful of this. Well, this has been fascinating. I wish it had been in person, but uh, that's not the nature <laughs> of reality today. Ashley, thanks so much. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad you're Thank having you. a, better, a better day today. <laughs> um, it's a great day. It's beautiful weather. I'm happy. <laughs> Yay. And Cindy, thanks for your time. Thank you. That's Ashley Giles of Golden and Cindy White. Cindy is Associate Professor and Associate Dean at CU Boulder's College of Media, Communication, and Information. Finally today, more from our pandemic playlist. On Spotify, CPR News has assembled songs that can ease the monotony of staying at home. I had two contributions. The first is a synth-pop power ballad by Taylor Swift. It's called Out of the Woods from back in 2014. And I just think the lyrics take on an entirely new meaning in the coronavirus era. Are we out of the woods yet? Are we out of the woods yet? She repeats. Are we in the clear? Are we in the clear yet good? And I think that's what the world is asking. Are we out of the woods yet? Are we in the clear? And when we get to that point, it's going to be such a global sigh of relief and celebration. I can imagine this blaring from rooftops around the world. Are we in the clear yet? Are we in the clear yet? In the clear 
There's even a reference to a hospital room. Remember when you hit the brakes too soon. And then it's just this gorgeous, huge repetition. Are we out of the woods yet? Are we out of the woods yet? It's exactly what I've been asking quietly to myself. The second tune is more obscure, and it's just perfect for a stay-at-home order. It's called The Great Indoors, and it was written by Cole Porter for a Broadway show called The New Yorkers. From Saturday until Monday, I'm what the sportsman abhors. A weekend hater thanking my creator for the great indoors. While all the others are rushing From bathing suits to cross fours I'm glad I own a comfortable kimono For the great indoors I actually learned about this tune from a friend who does drag. Her drag name is Miss Ida Bagel. She lives in Boulder. And uh, she loves digging up old, obscure songs. And Miss Bagel did a COVID-19 Facebook Live show, and this was in it. Instead of wrecking my system by playing games with old boars, I take no chances sitting on my Francis in the great indoors. It's the only known reference in the English language that refers to the fanny as a Francis. Cheers, darlings. Now, at its heart, this is about a city girl who doesn't much like weekend sports. But I think that it is perfect for this moment because we could all stand to be a little less outdoorsy than we are in normal times. I know there has to be a balance, but uh, I just find this song to be a riot. Instead of wrecking my system by playing games with old boys... I'll take no chances sitting on my Francis in the great indoors. Hello, darling. Lovely day inside, isn't it? You can hear those songs and other stay-at-home staff favorites. Just search CPR News on Spotify. And thanks for joining us today. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast, Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.